Listen, it's not coffee or donuts. It's not campfires or s'mores. Not peanut butter or jelly. Great things happen when two good things come together. So why choose between cash flow or appreciation? Rent to Retirement's new construction homes give you both. Rent to Retirement offers newly built homes that attract the best tenants with fewer repairs in outstanding rental markets. That means more monthly cash flow for you and plenty of equity growth in the background. Plus, their creative financing options let you buy investment properties with just 5% down. Not 20%, not 10%, 5% down. Rent to Retirement offers turnkey new construction homes already built, leased, and managed for you. Their investing experts find the best markets that consistently offer double-digit returns and prices as low as $150,000. And they've got more five-star reviews than any company on Bigger Pockets. You invest, Rent to Retirement does the rest. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com. Or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777. Every lender loves to talk about how easy it is to get a mortgage. Then when it's time to fund your next deal, they ask for your full financials, your blood type, your mother's famous spaghetti recipe, and a map to the fountain of youth. Sound familiar? You got all that handy, right? Why not switch to a lender who actually makes qualifying for a loan easy? A lender like Host Financial. Host Financial takes the tedious tax returns, endless W-2s, and time-consuming financial requests out of the picture. Their light dock and common sense underwriting guidelines mean frictionless transactions every time. You'll even be able to use the actual or projected income of the short-term or long-term rental you're looking to purchase or pull equity out of. That's what lending built for investors looks like. So take the next step and grow your portfolio faster. Visit hostfinancial.com to request a quote in as fast as 60 seconds, which is faster than this ad. If not, it's pretty close. That's host, H-O-S-T, financial.com. Again, that's host, H-O-S-T, financial.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. I'm proud to offer premium wireless for just $15 a month. And I'm proud that we have thousands of five-star reviews from customers like Dan D in New York who writes, I am satisfied customer. How can this only be 15 bucks? He wrote it in all caps. I needed you to feel it like he feels it. I hope I did that justice, Dan. And I hope that you try Mint too at mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 for three months required. New subscribers only. Renew for 12 months to lock in savings. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See mintmobile.com. This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast, show 334. Our mission statement is to improve lives through real estate. If we're not on top of you know, fixing somebody's air conditioning or something like that, we are not improving lives through real estate. We don't have those concerns in self-storage. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. What's going on, everyone? This is Brandon Turner, host of the Bigger Pockets podcast, here with the co-host of the hour, Mr. David Green. David, welcome to the show, man. Thank you, but what does co-host of the hour mean? You're the co-host only for the first hour. After that, we kick you off and we bring somebody else. <laughs> I don't know. That's exactly That's how like it sounds. It's man of the hour, right? It's But it's, it's it's co-host of the hour instead of man of the hour. You're making me sound like I'm making a cameo on the podcast. <laughs> like this is a Game Game of Thrones episode and like one hour into it, my head's chopped off and I'm replaced with Pretty much. Do you remember Ed, a Lannister. Ed Sheeran was in an episode of Game of Thrones once. He made a little cameo. Did you know that? Yeah, he was sitting by the campfire yeah, singing a little yeah. song. I yep. do remember that. Yeah, you know. So you're he pretty probably much, died. You're pretty much just like Ed. 
That's why yeah. people call well, today's you episode David is Ed. packed full of Game of Thrones <laughs> references. Actually, we compare Brandon to Tyrion. Yes, I think that's that true. I, that was it, pretty much. I, yeah, and the one right here. So I guess how like jam packed could be subjective, but it is a really, really good episode. Our guest today is very articulate, much better than what I'm trying to say right now. It's high energy. He's very smart. He makes up for my lack of intelligence. Don't worry, guys. You're gonna love it. Well, yeah. Today's guest is Ben Lapidus. He's a, a super cool guy. He runs the best ever conference that uh, I was speaking at last a uh, couple months ago, uh, and I, I met him there, and I was like, man, this guy is wicked smart and doing some really, really cool stuff and has an amazing story. I mean, in his story, he talks about how he got started uh, with his first couple of deals. And then he figured out a really cool strategy for investing in rentals with no money down. I mean, like legitimately, like he would get a, a piece of a bunch of rental deals without having to put any money into it. It's a really cool strategy that if you're brand new to real estate, you're going to love this strategy. Then he talks later about negotiating seller financing, which is phenomenal. His tip on that, it's towards the end, but listen for that. He talks about self-storage, which is a really, really fascinating industry that might just like change your entire like thought on what you want to get into next. Self-storage now is going to be like, oh, that's the next shiny object because it is really cool. Mm -hmm. uh, he bought a car wash. He talks about that. That's pretty cool. And then he tells later about a deal where he lost $120,000 on a flip. And the lessons he learned from that will save you from that happening to you. At least that's my hope. So again, this show is just chocked full of really good stuff. And speaking of chocked full, what does chocked full mean? It's the same thing. I don't even know what that means. Like a lot of I'm going to research that and have an answer for you on the next podcast. There's so many sayings. Like when we say a game was a barn burner, I never <laughs> know never if that means that it was boring. You never heard him say it's a real barn burner. No, I've never heard that. I never know. <laughs> Does it mean it was exciting or it was boring? Cause like watching a barn burn can't be very exciting, but it's kind of thrilling. It, maybe like if it was like the neighbor's barn, you didn't like the neighbor. Anyway, yeah. moving on. Before I get to the today's quick tip, I do want to just ask a quick favor. If you've not yet left a rating or review for our show, please do so. It really, really helps us out. It helps us reach more people. iTunes bases all their algorithm recommendations largely on reviews and ratings. So if you haven't done that, just click that little five-star button on your on your app, on your uh, iPhone or whatever you're using and uh, let people know you like the show. And with that, let's get to today's quick tip. All right. So today's quick tip is actually uh, brought to us by our good friend, Dave Meyer. What's up, Dave Meyer? Not too much. It's been a it while. Been, How you guys been? It's been a while. What was the last time you were on the Bigger Pockets podcast? It's been, I don't know, a year at least. I think so. Yeah. It was before David Green was the the regular new host. So thanks for having me back. Yeah, this should be fun. So we're we are actually talking about today's quick hey, tip. tip. And that is the <laughs> brand new Bigger Pockets premium account. Uh, and I wanted to I wanted to bring you on the show and talk about it because this doesn't apply to everybody. And and I would say, you know, not yeah. every single person, but there are some people listening to the show right now that this is going to be incredibly valuable. So let's just take like two minutes here uh, and just start. What is Bigger Pockets Premium? You've been running this whole project. So that's why I thought you'd be the guy to explain it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about this. It's a really cool new platform that we are launching. And basically, we are launching a new membership type that is geared towards people who are trying to grow their business. If you in some way service the real estate investor community, the premium account is probably something you might want to think about. So if you're an agent, a lender, 
property manager, that sort of person, we have launched a whole new way for you to get in front of our audience. So you can create a marketing page, basically, um, that allow you to upload marketing materials. You'll be able to showcase any deals that you've done with our community. You'll be able to get reviews from people in our community. And ultimately, that will hopefully turn into some new business for you. And really, the way we came up with this was just... We wanted to leverage the strength of Bigger Pockets, which is our community. And so we wanted to make sure that agents would be able to get reviewed by our community and be able to... Our community is participating in, in vetting all the people that might be working with people from Bigger Pockets. All right. That is fantastic. Yeah. Why did you decide to build this? Uh, well, honestly, we've gotten a lot of feedback from both sides of the community that this is something that they want. Uh, first and foremost, we have nearly half of the people who sign up for Bigger Pockets tell us that they are interested in meeting an agent, for example. There's also tons of people who are interested in meeting property managers, lenders, everything. I mean, it's something we talk about all the time here is uh, how do you build a team? How do you find, surround yourself with people who are going to help you become successful? And Bigger Pockets, honestly, has been great at that over the long haul, but we haven't exactly made it easy. So we're just trying to make a way to facilitate these connections. And then on the other side, obviously, most people who are on Bigger Pockets participating in the community want to generate new leads for their business. And uh, we figured we'd make a way f- for matchmaking to be a little bit simpler. All right. So it's like a dating site, but for... <laughs> it's basically... Matchmaking, yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, but it's only one-way dating. So I just want to be clear: like, we're not selling anyone's data to agents yes. or anything like that. But if you're a Bigger Pockets member and you want to find an agent, you can now browse through different agents, check out their qualifications, see which ones have the experience and the expertise that is most relevant to you, and then if you want to work with them, you can reach out to them on Bigger Pockets. It's as simple as I that. I can't get past one so, one-way dating. I think that's illegal in most states. <laughs> Well, I was wondering, because I have one of these accounts myself, right? And I'm wondering when they come across my picture, which way do they have to swipe so that they know? (laughs) They're only swiping right for you, David. You have a 100% success rate. Awesome. All right. So what do people do if Um, they want to? Yeah, I I think that's an important distinction that we want to make is that we want high quality agents and we want high quality users. This isn't going to be just like another um, way for... Um, you know, we, we want to make sure anyone on Bigger Pockets who reaches out to an agent is going to have an awesome experience. And we've really designed that this entire product with that end goal in mind. All right. And where can people go if they want to find out more about this premium membership to see if it's right for them and their business? It is very easy. All you got to do is go to biggerpockets.com slash premium. And from there, you can upgrade your to a premium account if you already have a company profile. If not, you will be prompted to create a company profile. It's super easy. It takes less than a minute and you can upgrade after that. Very, very cool. All right. Well, good deal. Well, with that, that is awesome, Dave. Thanks for having me, guys. It's awesome. Thank you, Dave Meyer. And with that, I'm just going to jump right into the show because Dave and I have talked too much in this introduction and I want you guys to get to know Ben. So without further ado, let's get to today's interview with Ben Lapidus. All right, Ben, welcome to the Bigger Pockets podcast, man. Good to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, Brandon. Good to be here. Yeah, yeah this should be a good time today. So tell me about yourself. I mean, I, I you and I hung out a bit there in Denver uh, and I got to know you a little bit, but I never heard your early story. So how did you get into real estate? Like, What, what came before and what was uh, kind of the impetus into the business? 
Yeah, man. So uh, the quick and dirty is in college about a decade ago, I was uh, headed towards Wall Street doing the investment banking thing in 2009, which was an awful time to try and figure that out. So quit my internship, headed to Costa Rica on a whim, found a business model uh, that worked with study abroad. Tourism was dead. The green fad was just picking up. So we started a study abroad company for renewable energy, sustainability, water conservation, bring in environmental engineers to Costa Rica, which then expanded Iceland and Japan. Uh, so three years later, we were doing about $2 million a year in business, sold out, used that money to buy my first couple of rentals because at the same time, my parents were trying to find a retirement home. They didn't want to move yet, even though they had it and they were renting it out. And they're like, hey, you've got a finance degree. Help us figure this out. So they bought one and then they bought another one and I helped them with that. And they bought a third one. I helped a little bit more. And by the time I had sold my, my, uh, my shares in the business, uh, they had bought five or six and I had experience with that. So I just turnkey system, bought my first two rental properties all on my own. Got to New York after I sold my business, signed up for an ad tech company. First one IPO'd. The second company I worked with had a major acquisition and I was surrounded by a lot of people that had just made a lot of money. And they heard that I was buying these like cheapo houses in 2012 that were cash flowing at like 20%. And so they're like, Hey, I don't want to figure that out. I've got way too much to do, you know, making a million dollars a year or whatever. Here's 50 grand or a hundred grand or something. Just go buy me a house. And so I yeah. did, but I'm not a broker. I was, I was an investor myself. So we had an agreement which I did this seven, eight times where I would just own 25% of whatever they bought and I would get 25% of the cash flow, 25% of the equity, and they would hold the mortgage and put in a hundred percent of the capital. Um, That's so awesome. that, yeah, yeah, that was my little hack to, to try and, and build up my balance sheet. Uh, before I sold my business, I had like 800 bucks to my name. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and all, all of a sudden I had this fat six figure check, bought a couple of houses. And then my balance sheet just started snowballing with other people's money. Um, so I, Turned that into syndicating my first multifamily portfolio. I didn't know I was syndicating, so I definitely did it wrong. You know, a 24-year-old doesn't know what he's doing. Sure. There wasn't there wasn't good conferences at the time to meet people. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So, okay. So, let, let's dive into this a little bit because yeah. you, you, you said some really good stuff here. So, first of all, I love that you just like jumped in at that young age, bought a couple rentals instead of like, why did you not go... Like what would it different for you to not just go blow that money on a, you know, $80,000 car or like most people like at that age, when they get a big chunk of money, they just go and spend like, you know, you worked hard, you know, reward yourself. Why, why did you decide to put it into rentals? Yeah, I had a, a pretty disciplined uh, upbringing financially and the, it just always resonated in the back of my mind do what people aren't willing to do today so that I can do what people can't do tomorrow. And so, oh. you know, that's always just resonating with me. I'm always thinking about that. Like, how can I work? How can I invest in myself today so that I don't have to do things I don't want to do, you know, five, 10, 20, 50 years down the line. So yep. that was, yeah, that was a mindset. Yeah. I was talking to a friend yesterday who said, uh, he was telling me how, a buddy of his works in like oil and gas and they, it's like on this boom bust cycle and the guy will go from making, you know, a hundred, 150, $200,000 a year. And then a couple of years later we'll be making nothing. And it said every like three years, he loses his house and goes into foreclosure and loses all his vehicles. And then he'll get, he'll go and buy a new house and like a big trailer and like a bunch of R, you know, RVs and four wheelers and then lose it all again. It's like this cycle oh my God. that people get into. So yeah, that, that gives like, me anxiety. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Hearing right. that story, I'm like, oh, what did that? Yeah, no, yeah. no, no thanks. Like, wow, what if he just like lived on like half that income and put the other half away? Like, he'd probably right, be out of yeah. a job right now. Like, man, but but people, are, and I don't know how you train people that way. I don't know how you get people to think that way. I don't know. I, I don't know either. Yeah, I um, I, I 
I, I love, I love my sibling, uh, but they decided to go, uh, live life differently. And so, you know, same, yeah. same exact upbringing, uh, but just yeah. responded to it differently. Yeah. yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, I get you. I like what you did though. You know, you, you bought a, you bought a, like a, what was it? A, a two unit for your daughter so that she yeah, could like four unit, yeah. four unit for your daughter. Yeah, yeah. That, that's uh, I'm sure people have, I don't know if you talked about it on the, on the show before, but that's pretty badass. That's, that's, that's the, that's a good way to start. <laughs> I think that's, I think for those who don't know what you're talking about, I bought a fourplex for my daughter the week she was born on an 18 year mortgage. What's well, really a 30 year, but I have it set up on 18 year payoff numbers. So it'll be paid off when she goes to college. So now it'll be worth three or $400,000. She can use that money to get into real estate or to go to college or whatever she wants. It's her deal. But basically she gets to see real estate for the next whatever. So anyway, kind of cool. Anyway, hey, look at you. Uh, ben. <laughs> you remember my story. That's awesome. All right. So you, you, you go back, you go to New York, you get this 25% of these deals, which by the way, I think is a phenomenal strategy. If you're listening to the show right now and you're like, I'm trying to get started. I just don't have anything. I'm not sure what to do. Like what a great thing. Hey, I'm going to go find deals for people. I'm going to put all this stuff together and I'm going to get a small piece of the puzzle. It's the same thing we say all the time. 50% of a great deal. In this case, 25% of a great deal is still better than hundred percent of nothing. So like you were gaining knowledge, gaining experience, all that. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Where, where were those properties at, by the way? Was this Midwest somewhere? All in Richmond, Virginia. I picked up Richmond, uh, okay. 12 to 14. I, I think it was 14 houses. Yeah. Over three years. Wow. wow. Very, very two, cool. Something. All right. Then. Yeah. All right. So why then, I'm going to steal, David wrote this question here, but I'm going to ask it. Why did you move? You said you syndicated your first deal. I want to know that transition. Why did you go from buying these single family and then walk us through that very first uh, syndicated deal? Okay. So <laughs> I actually became friends with Joe Fairless before he was the Joe Fairless yeah. that we all know and love today. Um, yep. And so before he had the podcast, before he had the um, uh, the books and everything, he, he put on a Skillshare class in New York. He was also in advertising. He lived a few blocks from me. And so he put on a Skillshare class, you know, like how to buy a $7 million apartment building for 15 grand. And we had a mutual friend. That mutual friend brought me out. I think I, there was like five people at this class. It's like, you know, that picture that, you know, that you see on on, uh, on, you know, that he uses everywhere. He like took it at that class. And and so he showed me this. I was like, Oh my God, I can actually go and buy an apartment building. I can put in the exact same amount of work to buy an apartment building as I would for a single family. Uh, so I started looking, I was proactive about it. It didn't just fall in my lap. And I bought an awful property. I, I, (laughs) I did not buy a good one. Yeah. So I was like, Oh, this is the exact same as buying a single family house or a portfolio of them. It's the exact same. It's, it's really not. I, I ended up getting out of the deal. Okay. Uh, but I purchased this thing for more per door than it was worth. I could not increase rents the way I was able to for the single family. I couldn't uh, put all the money into the renovation and I was way too optimistic about my capital stack um, and just did not have the working capital that I needed to survive the ups and downs. Um, yeah. So that's, that's, that's the, the high level. Okay. How did I syndicate it? So this, yeah. the, there's a good story with this one because I, I had a list of 70 people. I was like, I can call these 70 people. A lot of them were people that had, I'd done houses with. Everybody said, no, it was an apartment building. They weren't, they didn't like the idea of being one of five people to work with. And one person said no. And uh, I was like, okay, so I've got like, I don't know, a hundred grand and I need 400 grand. And so one person said no. And the next day I'm in the middle of like a meeting at work and I see that this person's calling me and I'm like, I'm going to get in trouble if I pick this up. But I did it anyway. I just like walked out of the meeting, didn't say anything, went to the stairwell, picked it up and said, hi, 
what's what's going on? I thought we said it was no. He's like, actually, you know, I've been thinking about it. I, I just want to I want to I want a relationship with you. So I'm here sitting with somebody that I just met. I've never met them before. I'm talking about you. I don't know why, but you came up and this person's interested. If you can convince them to co-invest right now, like we'll we'll complete the deal for you. And I was like, oh. Okay. So 20 minutes later, he said, all right, show up to my apartment. It's, you know, 15 Central Park West, wherever it was for lunch on, on Friday. We did not talk about the deal at all. And an hour later, he wrote me the check. So. <laughs> oh, funny. Yeah. That's really like what a lot of syndication is, honestly, is just that relationship. Like if people like you and you can get them to like you and trust you, they'll probably invest with you. That's, I think like, that's the first thing. It's the same thing on the venture capital side. It's, it's people first and then yeah. uh, traction second, and then the product. It's like, what is, who, who are you? Can I trust you when I look you in the eyes? And yep. you know, what experience and track record do you have? And then I'm going to look at the asset. That's what I found. That's so true and so good. So, oh, by the way, everybody, uh, Joe Fairless, you mentioned Joe Fairless. He's yeah. a good buddy of yours. I know a good buddy of mine. Uh, Joe was on episode 227 of the Bigger Pockets podcast. It was called From Single Family Houses to 130 Million in Multifamily, which now I know he has way more than 130 Million in Multifamily because yeah. the guy's like, he's like a rocket ship. But uh, anyway, I definitely recommend listening to that one. Everybody go over to biggerpockets.com. So I show 227 for more on Joe's story. And then uh, I think even, I think if I recall, I think he even mentions that first meeting he had there in New York, which is funny that this is coming full picture yeah. now of you being at that thing. So uh, where was the property at? Uh, that one was also in Richmond. Okay. So it, you, you started Richmond. That's where your family's from. And then you you were from originally is that right? No, they wanted to retire down there picked- like a year before we oh, okay. bought, I bought my first house. They just moved there like okay. three or four years ago, but we started buying stuff down there a decade ago. Okay. Very cool. All right. So uh, I guess walk us through what came next after that, that syndication didn't go so well. You said you got out. Okay. Yeah. Kind of what was the, what was the picture there? Yeah. So it, it, it didn't go so well. It, it wasn't, it wasn't going negative, but it wasn't going positive. I wasn't producing the, the distributions. And what I learned was, is that I, I'm a finance guy. I love finding deals. I love having conversations. I love underwriting, I love negotiating, getting under contract, taking it all the way to close. And then I want to look at the next deal. I'm like a dog chasing squirrels, right? So yeah. like the minutia of managing vendors, projects, asset management, it's just, it's just not complimentary to my skill set. So around that time, I met my wife in New York. We decided to move out to Denver, Colorado. I said, I need to connect with some people. I know nobody in Colorado. Started the best ever conference, met a lot of really cool people, yourself included. Two of those uh, partnered up with, and they were converting their strategy. They were doing a bunch of condo conversions in DC. I had this cash flow experience. They had this wealth flipping experience. So we married it together, decided to focus on commercial, and now we're buying self-storage full-time. And I am uh, doing acquisitions for that business (laughs) full-time. Very cool. Okay. Let me try to unpack some of this and then ask you a couple of questions to clarify. Let's do it, David. (laughs) So you're involved in several different kinds of real estate investing. And can you sum up all the different stuff that you're buying? Yeah. So uh, over the last few years, we bought an RV park. We bought a uh, several uh, parcels of land. We bought a car wash and mostly self-storage facilities. Car wash, self-storage, land. And did you say multifamily there? Uh, RV park. RV park. Okay. Now why those things? Do they all have something in common? So really the emphasis is self-storage. That's what we spend all of our time looking for proactively. The car wash was, uh, it conveyed with just uh, an 80,000 square foot facility that we bought. So we looked at it, we said, you know what? We don't know car washes. We, we'd spent a month reading every single book in the universe on Amazon about car washes. If you can believe it, there's three of them. So it took us all of <laughs> an hour to read through all those books. We had more inspections 
connections than we probably needed, spent a lot of time networking and said, you know what, we can figure this out. This is not going to make us uh, a ton of money, but it's not going to kill the deal for us. The RV park we just stumbled upon, that was a reactive acquisition versus proactive. And then the land is to support the construction of self-storage. So really self-storage is the focus. So that was what I was really hoping to pull out of this is you had a goal, self-storage, mm-hmm. but then in pursuit of that goal, you stumbled across other opportunities that if you had said, I don't know, what do I want to do? Do I want to do a car wash, a laundromat, a self-storage? You probably never would have taken any action, but because you picked something and you went for it, other stuff kind of fell into place because you were out there making things happen. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. So we, we actually spent 90 days point. after uh, we said, okay, these are our qualifications. We want to pick something with low operation maintenance. We want very few surprises under the dirt and we want something that is uh, becoming more institutionalized. So we had those qualifications. We went through all the asset classes through a strategic planning process and we came across storage and we said, okay, storage is what we're going to focus our time and attention on a few years ago. And then we spent 90 days not doing anything, not looking for assets, not, not trying to raise money, just reading everything we could, networking, uh, uh, connecting with as many brokers as possible. And that was our education time period. It was not sufficient to be a master in self-storage, but it was enough to make sure that we weren't going to make living under the bridge type mistakes when we bought our first portfolio. Yeah. I I noticed a lot of people, they want to know every step before they take the first one. Brandon and I see this constantly, but the more people we talk to, the less we see that they actually had a blueprint that they followed completely. It's more like you started off growing just a a, a little twig coming out of the ground like a tree, and then things start branching off of it. And you don't know exactly where it's going to go, but you know, hey, I understand how to value this asset class. So I can value a similar thing, a car wash, a laundromat. It's similar to how your self-storage was going to work, an RV park. It's, it's, there's a lot of similarities. It's like learning a language that you already speak at the base language for it. So that was the first thing I wanted to point out is that's what the listener should be expecting is I'm going to pick an asset class. I'm going to chase it. And in that pursuit, more stuff's going to come. Another thing that you mentioned was that you like to chase down these deals put them under contract and move on. You're not the guy who's basically going to be maybe operate running operations or managing the, the process. Can you tell me why you like that part of real estate and then what you did with your partners so that your weaknesses were on somebody else's plate? Yeah. So why, why do I like that part of real estate? I just think it goes with how my brain works. I'm a numbers guy. I like to do math quick in my head. I have a gut instinct that is not typically matched by a lot of people that I interact with. But I'm also self-admittedly highly ADD. You know, everybody's got something on the on the mental spectrum, right? You know, every, so everybody's somewhere on the ADD spectrum. Some everybody's somewhere on the narcissistic personality disorder spectrum. I'm just really high up on ADD. So, like being being organized, making sure I'm following up on things, uh, having things slip through the cracks. If you don't do a deal, you will not lose other people's money. And so that is that is my cost of making a mistake. If I own something and I'm responsible for the management of it and I miss something, I have lost somebody's money uh, through negligence and I'm just not okay with that. That does not feel like being an okay fiduciary. So it's, it's a combination of doing what I'm good at, but also making sure that I'm being the best role that I can for our customers, which is our investors and our tenants. I love that you own that. Yeah, I've noticed that we typically look at impatience as a flaw. Most people would say you have to learn patience. You got to be patient. And there are times in life where patience is is absolutely necessary. 
but I'm very impatient. And I found that a lot of other top producers are impatient people. Yeah. They are constantly like, we need to get moving that we're, we're going to lose that deal. We're going to lose this opportunity. We got to push through this thing. Impatience is actually a virtue in certain situations like the one where you're in, where speed is of the essence and the ability to be decisive and make a quick decision matters. So that's something else that listeners should think about is there are things where you work a certain way, your brain thinks a certain way, you enjoy things a certain way. That doesn't mean you can't get into real estate investing because you don't love spreadsheets or you don't love networking. You just got to align yourself with people that do and focus on the parts that you like. Absolutely. And I noticed like the more and more people we talk to that are doing big deals, that's what they've done is they've just given up the fact that I'm never going to be good at this part. That's okay. Some other guy or girl has got to be good at that. I need to focus on this part. I mean, all, all of my real estate heroes have done the exact same thing. I mean, they're, they're, they've all got partners or they've got teams around them uh, and they wouldn't be able to do the scale that they're doing now if they didn't have people that they could depend on to do other facets of the business that wasn't their best. Yeah. Yeah. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. Finding rental property insurance has been a headache for the past few years. You know the feeling. You're scrambling, calling 20 different insurance agencies in a dozen different cities, struggling to protect your portfolio at the right cost. But I'm going to tell you a little secret that'll change everything. Veteran investors don't go through the everyday insurance companies. They just use NREG. NREG. That's N-R-E-I-G, provides insurance solely for real estate investors. They've built the largest insurance program in the country for residential tenant-occupied, vacant, and renovation properties. The best part? You can put all your properties on one insurance schedule and one monthly bill. And you can add, change, or remove properties without having to cancel one policy and purchase another. They insure properties from single-family rentals, up to 20-unit multifamily dwellings, vacation rentals, mobile homes, condos, and more. Trade catchy jingles for cash flow with insurance made for investors. Visit nreg.com slash bppod to request a proposal. N-R-E-I-G dot com slash B-P-P-O-D. Calling all property owners and operators. Are you managing a multifamily property and looking to elevate your resident's living experience? Introducing Quantum Fiber Internet, your go-to choice for speedy internet your residents will love. The process is as seamless as Quantum Fiber service. Starting at just $50 a month, your residents can enjoy fast, reliable internet that will make them love where they live even more. Connect with your local fiber representative today. Learn more at q.com slash go big. I wonder how they got that domain. That's q.com slash go big. Limited availability. Service and rate in select locations only. Taxes and fees apply. 360 Wi-Fi and other equipment lease charges, taxes, and fees are excluded from Price for Life offer and may be increased. Passive income without the property headache? It's possible. 
There's a way to invest passively in real estate and get monthly income without any tenants, maintenance, or property management. The wealthy have been doing this for years, and if you're an accredited or high net worth investor, you too can collect cash flow without the headaches that come from owning rentals. How? By investing in a private real estate fund with PPR Capital Management. PPR's co-founder, Dave Van Horn, wrote the book on real estate note investing for BP. But he's not just investing in notes. Dave and his team also have an extensive background in commercial real estate. And with PPR Capital Management, they're strategically investing in both notes and commercial real estate nationwide. With over half a billion dollars in assets under management, PPR has provided individuals with a steady source of truly passive income since 2007 without ever missing a payment. Check them out at investwithppr.com. Again, if you're looking to get monthly passive income from an experienced team with a strong track record, go to investwithppr.com today. So why, why self-storage? I really want to know. You're the second guy that I've talked to about this. What was so appealing about that? So I, th- I think self-storage, there's pros and cons of self-storage, but self-storage is you've, you've got uh, low tenant risk. You're not, you're not messing with somebody's livelihood if you're, if you're you know, 24 hours late to swap out you know, the, the HVAC or something. You've got very little risk legally on the actual contents of what's in the unit. So your interaction with clients is not as... Um, meaningful. I mean, our mission statement is to improve lives through real estate. If we're not on top of, you know, fixing somebody's air conditioning or something like that, we are not improving lives through real estate. We don't have those concerns in self-storage. Secondly, the maintenance on a metal building with doors in the middle. And when you've got climate control, you've got some HVAC running through is significantly easier than the maintenance, the capital expenditures on a multifamily building. And, And thirdly, the risk of what's going on beneath the ground is much less because you don't have plumbing. You've got concrete pad and then you've got metal on top of it. There's nothing going on beneath the ground. So from a development perspective, it's a little bit more uh, simpler and it also makes the capital expenditure part a little bit easier as well. So those those are the three things that we were looking at. In addition to, is this asset class becoming more institutionalized? Our cap rates compressing. And so self-storage met all of those things. There's other asset classes that meet those things as well. And what we're learning is, is what we've, what we learned years ago at this point, now we're just dealing with it, is that self-storage isn't any less competitive than say multifamily. So we were looking to get out of a red ocean market. Cell storage is not really one that you jump out of a multifamily red ocean market or even a single family red ocean market and say, oh, I'm in this brilliant landscape of, of blue oceans and I can, I, can, <laughs> I, can, I can make all this money doing things easy like, I, like single family back in 2012, right? Like I, I wish cell yeah. storage was single family back in 2012. So we're, we're looking at other asset classes that meet all those other qualifications to add onto our repertoire now while not taking our eye off the ball of cell storage. You know, what's funny is I, I've been thinking the same thing lately. I and mean, people probably know if they listen to the show a lot that I'm, I'm getting heavy, more and more heavily into mobile home parks. And originally what attracted to me them is like, there wasn't a lot of competition for them. I thought like, it was like, oh, these are not very competitive, but same thing, right? Like just because it's not as like popular as multifamily, there are, there is a hundred times less mobile home parks out there. And so like, they're just as competitive because there's a hundred times less people looking for them, but a hundred times less property. So it's the exact same competitive nature. Like a competitive. It really is the exact same thing. I mean, I know multiple yeah. guys, I mean, Ryan Smith, Elevation Cabinet, multiple guys who do mobile home parks and self-storage because they're complementary assets, but yep. the landscape yes. is basically the same from a buyer seller marketplace. It's so I feel, I feel your pain, Brandon. (laughs) Yeah. 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 (laughs) uh, So let's, let's talk about that. How are you finding deals in today's market? How do you, how do you find self storage? uh, Working my tail off. (laughs) 
Um, so we're, we're attacking everything. So I, I'm best friends with every broker out there, which there's, there's a lot less than multifamily. I mean, you go to CBRE and there's, there's one team nationwide. So there's a couple of guys on the team, but there's, there's one guy. So it's a lot easier to become friends with every single self storage broker in the nation than it is, uh, for multifamily. Cool. Uh, secondly, you know, we're making phone calls. We've, we did, um, we, we've got somebody on our team, director of business intelligence. Uh, she spends all of her time, uh, researching what is ex- exactly that we want market reducing the entire country down into a list getting all the contact information. And then we're just, we're blasting out letters, making phone calls, doing digital assessments with BAs and interns. So we've got both of those strategies. And in addition to that, just being open-minded to be as creative as possible. So we're looking at ground up construction, you know, build it if you can't buy it as well as conversion opportunities, taking Kmart's and, uh, and Sears and, and just gutting them and putting in metal blocks uh, for storage, which is probably the most lucrative strategy within self storage. We think, um, yeah, that's the one strategy we yeah. haven't, we haven't executed to, to, to complete term yet. Yeah. We had a guest on the podcast, AJ Osborne. Let me see. It was episode number, hold on, I'm pulling it up right now. And he was doing, he told this story about making millions of dollars in equity. I mean, like it was like $10 million of equity. Uh, it was on episode 286 of the bigger pockets podcast. And this guy like bought an old Kmart and completely renovated the whole thing to be self-storage. And I thought it was just a phenomenal strategy. Yeah. Uh, and then just now out here in Maui, where I live, there's an old Kmart. Somebody, I saw it. It was sitting there when I bought, when I moved here. And right now it is a full U-Haul uh, self-storage facility yeah. now. And I'm like, dang it, I should have jumped yeah. on that. But probably gone by that point. So uh, as but of the start smart. of 2019, so the other interesting thing about storage is there's all these data platforms, kind of like multifamily. It's not like, I don't know, yeah. RV parks or restaurants. There's tons of data and all these platforms just added uh, flags for like Kmart's and Sears and, and uh, what's the other, ShopCo. Um, so now yeah. it's, it, that data is ubiquitously available to everyone. So now the, the value of those buildings as of the start of this year is just as difficult to make work financially as, as anything else. Mm. So now we have to look at uh, conversion opportunities that aren't a Kmart, aren't a Sears. They're uh, an 80,000 yes. square foot furniture a shop is just local. That's the only one they own and nobody else knows about it. That's, that's the kind of stuff we have to look for. You know, Ben, here's something I want to ask. That's a lot of opportunity that you're looking to take advantage of. We're talking about converting. We're seeing that like the market's a little frothier now than it was before. Just, we all said, we wish we could have bought like, the market was in 2012. Yeah. But the reason we say that is because it's been steadily getting better and better, right? What are some metrics you look for to safeguard your investments to make sure that you're not overextended? You're not putting in self storage in an area where there's not enough people to use it, stuff like that. Yeah. So the, the three things that we, we do to qualify a deal, which is a little bit of a different answer than to the question of, you know, what do you do to make sure that you're mitigating your risk? Um, so I'll answer both those questions. But the three things that we look for is one, uh, where is it? Is it in a market with positive population growth, positive income growth over a certain threshold benchmarked across the nation? So what do the demos look like? Basically, are there more people coming in? Are they making more money? Are there more houses coming up? So we have a map tool that we've created internally where I just put in an address and it's cross-referenced against Esri census data that's been updated to 2019. And it says, this is a good market. This is a bad market. And so I just follow that like it's God. Number two is, does it have expansion potential? What we're finding is, is you've got cap rates compressing and interest rates slowly, but rising. And so the spread between the cap rates and interest rates aren't very good. So you have to add value. And in multifamily, adding value could be adding amenities, doing all these things. And you can do the same thing in storage. It just doesn't have the same push. So we have a development core competence 
competency. We believe that we are exceptional at, I believe that my team is exceptional at uh, developing. So expanding on an existing facility, if not building one from scratch. So all of the the existing cash flowing storage that we're looking for has to have some type of expansion potential. That's how we're getting our large enough margins to make it worth our time. And if we expand, so to, to answer your question directly, if we expand, but it doesn't pan out exactly like we wanted to, well, we packaged in a 30% margin. So now if we were off by 20%, which would be a massive swing, we still have 10% upside. Is it, is it a home run for the investors? Absolutely not, but they're getting their principal back and they're definitely beating, uh, you know, a mutual fund, uh, a low risk mutual fund on that. So it's really hard. I think these days, if you're looking to do a flip in Seattle, Washington or Atlanta, Georgia, and you want a 30% margin, it's a pretty tough time to do that. Uh, but we're maintaining that standard. We're just taking on a little bit more development risk to get there. And admit it, Interesting. You know. Yeah. I, I think that's fascinating. The idea of you. So like, are you buying them? Let's say you buy a, a, a storage you know, what do you call it? Storage facility. Mm -hmm. And it's got a hundred spaces, but got room for development. Are you buying them? So that way it only makes sense. I guess if you were to expand that into 150, 200 spaces or, or, or units, uh, or like, does it cash flow at the hundred or are you going negative until those are built? Uh, would you take that risk? So, so let's take this last deal that we just did as an example. So we just bought an 81,000 square foot facility, 735 units. Uh, it was a $6 million deal. It's the one that came with a five bay car wash. We just closed on it in, okay, in, yeah. in April. So we kind of won on this deal <laughs> because uh, the appraiser said, you're basically getting the car wash for free. We think that your purchase price is equal to the value of the storage. It's like, okay, great. But outside of that, so it cash flows right from the get-go. If we don't take debt out for the construction capital to expand it, it cash flows from the get-go. And so how we structured cool. the deal is we said, we're going to take a little bit less. We're going to take on a little bit more equity as a percentage of our capital stack so that that equity can finance the expansion without stressing the existing uh, PL so that it continues to cash flow. The preferred return is less for our investors. And we can do this a little bit more slowly if you want me to break this down a second time, a second go around. Our preferred return is less, but our risk is also less so that we continue to cash flow during the expansion. So that, you know, when we get that CFO on that expansion, we start leasing up units. Now we're, we're starting to hit our preferred return and eventually expand beyond it. But we've also created this 30% value spread. And so when we go to either recapitalize it, refinance it or sell it, we've got this large liquidity event for our investor base. You want me to cycle yeah, back I, on that one? <laughs> I would love, yeah, let's, yeah, let's, let's go a little deeper in that. Cause I think that's really, really good stuff. So yeah, go, let's, let's go back through that again, kind of define some of these things. Like if people don't know what a preferred return is, yeah. uh, so, like that. so feel free because I love this. Okay. Stuff. Awesome. So let's, let's start with what is a preferred return. Preferred return says this is the return that I'm going to offer my investors as a percentage of their contribution before money goes to anybody else, namely the sponsor, which would be myself. So if, if I'm offering an 8% preferred return, that means means that on a hundred thousand dollar investment, you better be making eight grand before I pay myself a dime in uh, operating cash flow distributions of any kind. And if I don't hit eight grand in year one, if it's a rolling preferred return, which is what we always do, that means in year two, I need to have a combined 16 grand in your pocket on your hundred thousand dollar investment before I pay myself a dime. So Usually a lot of investors want to see something at 8%. They want, they, they want to get to that like kind of healthy six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10% number. And we're not yeah. hitting that in the first year because we took on more capital. We said, okay, we might only need, let's say $2 million, but we're going to raise 
two and a half or $3 million. So there's more contribution, more equity in the deal, but the same exact amount of cash flow. So the return on that investment uh, for all of our investors combined is a little bit lower, but we also have less risk so that we have a certainty of cash flow in those first two years. In addition to that, our debt capital, we made sure that we had an interest only period of two years. So we're not amortized during our, our construction and our lease up. So the com- combination of those two things on our capital stack ensures that we've got a, a lot of wiggle room on our operations before you know we like something catastrophic might happen on our cash flow. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And the rolling, the rolling preferred return is something I'd not really ever heard of before. I think that's kind of a cool way to, to pull that off. Like, cause yeah, I've wondered too, when I'm looking at mobile home park deals or even multifamily deals and I'm like, well, the first year is only like, I'm only going to give a 5% return to investors, but later on it gets so much yeah. better. Cause you know, it's, it's a value add. That's the whole point. You're buying a, a property that's underperforming. Exactly. And so exactly. Uh, I think that's a really neat way to handle that. So very cool. So what about. Like, where do you see, I'm wondering like self-storage in the future? Like, is this an industry that's just going to be growing more and more and more because Americans are just buying more and more junk or are, is this a boom and bust cycle that you're just kind of like trying to ride and, and, and fit in? Uh, I don't think it's a boom and bust cycle. So the last few recessions, if you, if you look at the history, self-storage hasn't really been impacted by it. That being said, the last decade of self-storage has seen an institutionalization of the asset class like no other asset class has experienced in that kind of a period of time. So you know, whereas 15 years ago, you might have had public and extra space and life storage, which are the big brand name publicly traded companies that own these assets, they might have had... Had, they definitely had assets, but it wasn't like they owned such a lion's share of the class A facilities. And there was a lot of mom and pop ownership. The buyers were expecting seven, eight, nine, sometimes 10% cap rates. Whereas now those same facilities would be expecting four, five, six. I mean, there was a portfolio I saw six months ago in Kansas that sold for three, seven, five stabilized cap rate. So oh. just, just for the listeners, cap rate is your unleveraged return on investment. So if there's no debt on it and you buy a million dollar facility, a 5% cap rate would be a $50,000 return on investment, unleveraged, no debt in the mix. So to have a 375, I mean, that's, that's less than what you can get on a CD, right? So (laughs) it's, it's a little bit ridiculous. And, and so the expectation is, well, rents are just skyrocketing, which has been true. I mean, rents have just been going crazy because there's been a massive increase in demand without a massive increase of supply. But that changed over the last two or three years. So over the last four years, more self-storage square footage has been built than the previous 30 years combined. So just the the amount of new supply that's in the market has overwhelmed quite a few. So Denver, as an example, I mean, rents have dropped 10%, I think, because there's just so much more supply than there was three years ago. But holistically, long-term, I do not believe that self-storage is going to decrease in value. I think that the cap rates are here to stay. They'll move a little bit with interest rates. It's not going to become uninstitutionalized and populations will fit into the supply at some point. So short-term, there's a lot of risk. Long-term, we're, we're not assessing nearly as much risk as there might be in other asset classes. So that's that's why folks are buying these things at ridiculously low cap rates, especially if they're coming from private equity groups, because there's just a lot of money on the table. Now, that's that's getting really sophisticated, probably for a lot of your investors, you know, comparing self-storage and private equity. So, you know, if, if I'm a listener, I'm thinking, oh, wow, self-storage is really cool, really low maintenance, you know, low turnover, uh, you know, really easy to manage, all of which is true. How do I go out and buy these things? Well, 
nobody's out yeah. there buying less than 35,000 square foot facilities. So that's, that's really the, the game that can be won by a local kind of, um, I want to use my own money. I don't want to syndicate. I don't, I don't want to raise any, if, if you want to go out and buy a, or build a 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 square foot facility, you can absolutely do that with very limited competition because the, efficiencies on the operations are much more difficult for a professional organization to make work from afar. So if you're going to be the one picking up the phone, because you're the one picking up the phone on your single families on a 20,000 square foot facility, you're going to be able to buy that for a really good deal. You can buy that perhaps for an eight, nine, 10 cap and add a ton of value to it. So there's definitely a lot of opportunity there. The one thing to keep in mind though, is at the end of your, your, if you're going to hold it for 30 years, great. But if you're going to try and, and add value and sell it five years later, who Who's your buyer at that point? So that's that's the thing to keep in mind. So that's why we're looking for you know the twenty thousand square foot facility that has expansion potential to add another thirty thousand square feet to it. Okay, so you can buy it at the level that the institutions are not actually in there playing in that level yet, but you can push it up to institution level, so they're going to be your buyer. That's so yeah. So smart, not only dude. are we getting the extra square footage, uh, so we're getting the spread on that construction, but we're also decreasing the cap rate on the entire portfolio. So you know, if we're buying it at a let's say a seven, but we expand it so that it's now in the five ballpark, we've taken the existing cash flow and made it more valuable without doing anything to it. Yeah, yeah, that's smart. So what? Can I break that down real, real fast? So I, I think compressing cap rates is something that we've mentioned before. And a lot of our listeners, especially if they're single family people, won't quite understand that. So there, there's, there's two ways that you can improve the value of multifamily property. One is you can increase the NOI, which is basically like the money that you make. It brings in minus your expenses that you have. The other is for the cap rate to go lower because those are the two levers that are pulled. You basically take your NOI, you're dividing it by the cap rate. It's very similar to the Burr method where you can improve your ROI by either getting more rent or by leaving less money in the deal. There's two levers you can pull to improve your ROI. Well, it's very yeah. similar with the value of a, of a multifamily property. And what Ben here is saying is that most of the time, your cap rate is completely dependent on market factors that you don't have any say in, right? Like it's just a whole bunch of money moves there. Cap rates go down because there's more competition. Your place becomes worth more money. It's harder for a buyer to make money with it. But you're actually putting a strategy in together that you can affect the cap rate so that you're making it worth more. And lowering your cap rate is like, I don't know what the right number, like 10 times more powerful than improving the NOI when it comes to your portfolio. So mm -hmm. that's why Brandon was over there drooling when you were talking <laughs> like, oh my God, that is, that is genius. I, I was looking at the twinkle in his eyes. You were speaking, so. Good job. Yeah, that's a great summary, David. Well done. Yeah. Not to say that there's not other folks doing it. I mean, it's, it's still uh, competitive there, but now we've eliminated the highly professional groups from trying to buy. And we've also eliminated the folks who aren't confident in their development expertise. So the, the buyer pool is smaller. So it's just, it's a little bit easier to get it, get it done. Yeah. And you also said something that I really liked about if you're trying to be less than 35,000 square feet, maybe you're in the 20,000 square foot range. There's opportunity there. But if, if you want to kind of, you said, pick up the phone and make calls, what you're basically describing is if you want to be an owner operator. Exactly right. Exactly. It, yes. It, right. If it's not a completely passive investment where I'm going to go buy it, let other people take care of it. Because every time you leverage something to somebody else, you pay them money and it becomes a bigger expense. So you have to have a lot of meat on the bone to be able to cut off all those little chunks. But it's perfectly fine if you don't want to to be paying other people. If you want to do some of that work, you're basically buying yourself an opportunity to work a job that's really high paying and you're still owning the business. So I thought that's a great strategy for people that are like, I really want to do this, but I can't buy something that big. Well, consider being an owner operator and getting your, your foot in the door.
And, and the tech yeah. landscape and storage over the last few years has been completely changed. So whereas two years ago, it might have been a lot of effort, a lot of time on the phone. There's just so many services out there now for storage. I mean, if, if you I would never want to buy one unless it was like within 10 miles of me within the 20,000 level, unless I had like a third party manager. But with all of the tech that's out there, I mean, there's ways to spend very little time owning it mm. without even having to hire a third party manager. I was hoping we would get to that because like I've been thinking about that actually lately, but just how like just a- things like apps and smart locks and all that are just making it more and more like uh, hands off to managers. And you don't necessarily have to go meet a manager to unlock the cage, to go open up the you know facility. Like a lot of that stuff can be automated. That's right. There's some guy that just built a, uh, in, in Grace Harbor, Washington, where I lived before moving to Hawaii, there's this guy who built, there's like a spot of, a spot of land right on the highway that it just been undeveloped for, you know, ever. And I don't even know who it was, but they built like a 50, like 50, like identical little like uh, storage sheds or whatever, you know, like all one big row. Uh, and he built, there's 50 of them in this, in this row. It's just sort of a straight, you know, one way, one way back. So I got 50 of them. Anyway, he leased them all up a week, like a hundred percent leased up a week after building them. And he's just a, like a local owner operator, just built this. He probably put down a 20 or 30% down payment, went to probably a local community bank, built these 50 units, leased them up immediately. And now I just was back there a, a couple of weeks ago and- there's a second one. He put a second one in right behind it. So like, clearly like it's working for him yeah. and it's a cool little, like he probably like was able to take some cash and turn it into a really, really good paying, uh, part-time, essentially part-time job for himself. If, if there is demand smart. to be able to do, and you've got a backyard and the yeah. city lets you do it and you can, you can throw some, some sheds up there or some, some metal up there for 40 bucks a foot, but you're getting rents. I mean, gig Harbor, Washington, I mean, the rents, there are going to be 16 bucks a foot. And so if, especially if you are managing it yourself, you're probably netting 12. So 12 on 40, it's yeah. <laughs> a pretty good deal. Yeah. 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 That's, it's crazy. So yeah, interesting strategies. What about the idea? Have you ever looked into like buying a multifamily that has room to add storage on there, buying a mobile home park room to add storage? Have you looked into that at all? No, for a couple of reasons. One, I personally do not like multifamily. My partners haven't, haven't uh, ever owned before, but they have zero interest in getting that same experience that I had, which is, it's just not, we don't want to be in the residential game. We don't want to have to be responsible for the interior of a unit. I mean, we've got an RV park where people live, but we are only responsible for the dirt pads and the utility hookups. So it's a very, very different situation. Sure. So that's number one. Number two, typically multifamily parcels are not going to be zoned to allow for additional storage. So we'd have to find something that's in unincorporated land where there isn't regulation for that. And that's, that's a little bit rare to find a quality multifamily that, that has that good cash flow that would allow for storage. And then third is what is, is it complimentary? I mean, who, who's your backend buyer when you're adding storage to the multifamily? We're trying to play in, in, in the institutional space. So we're always thinking about who's our end buyer when we're building things. So uh, we haven't done that, but for your listeners, if, if they've got a fourplex and there's like a half acre in the back or even even an extra 10,000 square feet and, and you want to add 5,000 square foot of storage, I mean, there are uh, portable units where it, you could just you could have them shipped and kind of laid down kind of like a mobile home. And you don't have to have city approval for that because it's not a permanent structure. It's personal property. So it is a, a way to add cash flow, perhaps not add value, but it is a way to add cash flow to your like with, with a very good ROI on that investment. I mean, like we just said maybe you know 40 bucks to to invest at $12 net uh, if you're in the right market, uh, because rents do vary quite a bit market to market. Um, but it's it's, yeah. it's it would be a great way to add cash flow for your single family, cool. multifamily listeners. Cool. Cool. 
Yeah, I, I've I've thought about that. I've never actually done it, but I've always thought, what if I just add some storage, you know, sheds back here, get some more cash flow, but never done it. <laughs> you know, there was an old episode of the podcast and I, oh, I'm trying to remember who it was. It might've been Sterling or Al Williamson, maybe, but they were talking, he was saying he had the goal of buying a multifamily apartment and having it pay for itself without rent. He wanted to like add self storage and rent out bicycles to the tenants yep. and have them pay for Wi-Fi. And like, that was like his vision was I'm going to buy an apartment complex that will sustain itself completely from non rent. And the rent would all just be like bonus cash. That sounds like L. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, I remember, I remember hearing that, but I think that that principle applies like, okay, I've got my meat and potatoes here. I'm collecting rent. Now, how can I add in some potatoes or some rice? Like, how can I make this a little bit better meal by throwing in self storage or, or laundry or some of the other things that people do. And when you're analyzing deals, you should be looking for what opportunity is there to add something else here that I can use to increase my NOI. Yeah, for sure. Hey, Ben, I, I wouldn't have to spend a lot of time in this because I think I know the answer and we've kind of touched on it, but how are you guys buying? Like how Spartan paying for these investments? You're syndicating, right? Can you walk us through what that looks like? Yeah, so so syndicating is just for the listeners. I'm sure you guys have had people on here before we've talked about it, but syndicating is pooling a bunch of people's money together under a legal structure that gives them ownership in exchange for their investment. Um, so we are acting as the general partners and we are syndicating capital from limited members. We are using 100% of the capital from other folks. Uh, and we are targeting a high teens, sometimes low 20% uh, internal rate of return. Um, yeah, I... Uh I, I can't talk about what we t- what we put out there for investing purposes, but I can talk about what what sure. I what I underwrite. So when I underwrite, I try to target for that that kind of metric with an eight percent preferred return that does not get diluted over time. Uh, so that has. I think the way that we go about doing our business, we have a strategic plan that is printed out and we can hand it over to people and they can look at it and say, oh, this is there's this guy's five year plan. This is like what they're trying to do. This is their mission statement. This is the value statement. This is uh, their environmental scan of the marketplace and how they came upon this strategy and what they've done with this strategy. Oh, and here's another document with their portfolio of projects. And here's their track record that combined with we're just a bunch of cool guys to hang out with. <laughs> we like to ski, <laughs> we like to scuba dive. We like to you know, hang around, and do conferences. And I, I think we're going to time for people. And we've always done the right thing with investors. We have had a a Ryan Gibson, my, my partner who's responsible for the, the investing, he's very, very good at uh, building those relationships and building that equity stack. On the other side of the table, we're building debt relationships everywhere. Self-storage and other commercial assets outside of residential don't qualify for the same kind of agency loans as multifamily would. So by agency loans, I just mean that there's not some government entity that's supplying this debt at a cheaper rate than private investors uh, or, or private debt providers. So we're looking at commercial mortgage-backed securities. We're looking at debt funds. We're looking at local banks, regional banks. We have turned over every single rock to get the best, the best deal. And and we've done some, some pretty non-standard stuff for the size storage that we've looked at. So the combination of those two things is what's financing our deals. And we, we do look for on the debt side, flexible debt that allows us to have interest only cash flow during our construction of the expansion on all of our deals until lease up and then converts over to a permanent amortized loan at a predetermined interest rate so that we're not exposed to interest rate risk, uh, you know, two, three years down the line. Uh, we like yeah. to lock it in today. It's almost like having two loans pre-negotiated. So, yeah. That's cool. That's very cool. Yeah. My, uh, my first apartment and my mobile home part that I just bought last year. Congrats. Both those I negotiated. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's fun. Both of those we did a year of no, uh, just interest only the first year. And it worked out like at the time I didn't really 
like, I don't know. I didn't really know like why I was doing that other than I just thought like, well, it'd be nice to have less payments. But like, I mean, that's really what it is. Yeah. I was like, cause I, that in the beginning, you don't have a lot of cash flow because they're fixer uppers. Like they, they, they're below rent or whatever. So anyway, that that's a cool strategy. Oftentimes, especially if you're, if you're listening to this and you're doing a single family or multi, especially if you're dealing with like seller financing, if you're like trying to get a seller finance deal at the very end of negotiation, like when you get to the very end and you're both like, okay, well, this is the price we're going to pay. Toss in, hey, can you also throw in a year of uh, interest only payments? And like it's most people are like, oh, yeah, that's fine. Cause it doesn't really make a difference to them uh, because they're getting the same amount of money, you know, more or less at the end of the day anyway. But it reduces your payment the first year a little bit. All right. So here, here's, a, here's a nice little nugget for your listeners. This is the coolest, coolest uh, negotiating strategy I've had for seller financing is explaining to sellers the difference between. Uh, taxes on interest and taxes on principal. And this conversation has helped me lower interest rates on seller financing down to virtually zero sometimes in conversations. Really? Explain this. Yeah. All right. So there's, there's principal and there's interest. Well, when you're paying principal, let's say they've got it entirely paid off. The tax rate on the principal portion of what they're receiving every year is going to be 25%. That is the constant standard, never changing tax rate on recaptured depreciation. So you're paying 25% on the principal portion of the payments that you are receiving as a seller finance on the income side or on the interest side, excuse me, when you're, when you're receiving interest on the principal, you have to pay income level taxes on that. So I'll say, Hey, let me increase the price but decrease the interest rate and you hold this note for a very long time. So that way you've got this really awesome vanity metric on price. I'm benefiting from saving, let's say a million and a half dollars on interest compared to a bank, but I've paid you $600,000 more on the price. And now you are paying 25% tax on everything instead of 25% tax on the principal side of your payments versus, and then, you know, 30, 35, 40% effective tax rate on your interest portion of the payments. So like, let's, let's wow, redistribute yeah. now how you're getting paid. I'm saving money along the way, but you are, you know, getting more cash in your pocket because you're saving on the taxes. That's phenomenal. <laughs> That's really, I've never thought of that in my life, but it makes complete sense. And if, if people are listening to this and it doesn't make sense to them, just go rewind that and listen to that again. Cause like, that's exactly, I mean, I don't know. That's a really good point. Cause the, the ta- they are text differently. And, uh, yeah, that's when we tell people you need to have more like tools that. in your tool belt, you could take down more deals. Yeah. That's a really good, tool. that's a good tool. That's a yeah. really good tool. Yeah. I do the same thing when I'm talking to buyers who are considering buying a house, but they're renting and they tell me, well, my rent's cheaper than if I was to buy. And then the minute you factor in like, well, the, the taxes, the tax savings you're going to get on your mortgage interest deduction completely changes that. And they go, Oh, yeah. So it would be cheaper for me to own a house and the rent's not going to go up every year. All of a sudden it makes a good argument. I just think in general, we tend to not think about taxes and there's such a huge, huge piece of your expenses that you can literally make a deal work that wouldn't have worked if you didn't account for a difference in tax rate. Yeah. There you go. Hey, Ben, if you, like, I, I've got a couple of questions here that aren't specific, like how to questions, but more yeah. about like you kind of your journey. If you were to look back in the last few years of your real estate investing, what memory or what example is just makes you smile and be like, man, that was great. Or that was an awesome, exa- like awesome day. Like that was the best day. Anything you can come up with? Uh, I know I'm throwing, springing that on. No, you. no, it's okay. So I, I feel like that best feeling came when I just drove down to Richmond one day. Cause like there was a bunch of just properties that looked really good. And I was like, crap, 
I can't take all these down by myself. I just bought my first two. I called up my boss's boss <laughs> who'd become a good friend because he had started a business in college. And uh, he, he's like, you know nothing about this business, but I'm going to hire you. I'm going to have my, my employee hire you because you started a business in college and that's all I need to know. So we became really good friends. I was like, hey man, I just found these three houses and they're, they're brilliant. They're great. They're going to cash for like 22% plus, you know, three, three, 4% principal reduction. And he's like, I'll buy them all. And that's, I, I didn't even think of that strategy. So the strategy of like, you know, people throwing cash at me and I, I get to keep 25%. I didn't come up with it. He yeah. did. And so, you know, he yeah. heard about it or he, so he, I called him up. I was like, how do I do this? And he's like, I'll just buy them for you. You can keep 25%. You found the deal. You'll manage it. I don't have to think about it. Just send me, send me checks. And then he started telling other VPs about it. And I, just like when I got off the phone, I was completely, I was just driving back from Richmond. Um, so that was a cool feeling. That was a, that was a catalyst, like a, a, a kind of a derailing moment to be like, oh, I, I without that call, I might not be a full time real estate investor. You know, that call kind of pushed me towards, oh, there's there's more I can do with this other than just taking my money that I'm earning on my W two and putting it to work. There's there's a, there's a way to do this full time and 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 really prosper here. That's cool. Can I give a second example? <laughs> please, no, All right, please. When we when we stumbled across this RV park by accident and it was being marketed a 17% cap rate and you're like, that's not real. There's no way that's real. There was a mistake in here. And there was a mistake in there. It was actually a 27% cap rate. It, <laughs> it went the other way. And now and now it's performing at like a 36% cap rate, however, however many months later after wow. us uh, purchasing it. And so we bought it a year ago for 1.7 million and we now have an indication through paper paperwork that suggests that it's worth uh, 5.5 million a year later. Wow. Yeah. That's wow. So getting that piece of paper saying, Hey, like you have more than doubled, almost tripled the value of this business with, you know, I I think our total cash into it is less than 2 million. Uh, That's, that's, that's another game changing moment. Yeah. Those are great examples. Yeah, I'm going to start asking that question. I think more often during these podcasts, I, that's, that's awesome. If you want to ask me the reverse one, I've got plenty of like, this is how I lost hundreds well, of please, thousands of dollars. Let's go there. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go to, let's, let's related one and maybe I'll come in there. Like what's been your biggest challenge so far in real estate? What's been something that just like, yeah, and, and how did you overcome it? Uh, I think bridging the gap, you know, I, I've been really aggressive in my professional life and I've been as aggressive in my personal life. I'm 29 years old. I'm married. I've got a kid and I lived in New York city, you know, not, not the cheapest way to go about life. Yeah. And so I decided I want to be a full-time real estate investor. You know, when I sold my business, it was game changing money for me then. And it's pennies to me now. It's like, it's like that would not support my family yeah. at all for like <laughs> a year. So not having the W2 and, and bridging the gap to support my entire family, that's been the most challenging thing, especially conflating that with my first real estate mistake. I mean, I'd never lost a dime on over 35 transactions, some commercial, some residential. And then all of a sudden, poof, 120 grand just disappeared on a deal on a house of all places. Right. So the, the combination of trying to bridge the gap at the same time as having that event occur, that's been the most challenging thing. All right. That's a good answer. All right. What about what's something you enjoy doing that you never get tired of, like in your real estate? negotiating, underwriting deals and negotiating. I know people hate underwriting deals, but I, I built my own platform. I plug all my numbers in. I, I do it all myself. I can just sit there for hours and play with it and be like, Oh, what if I do it this way? What if I structure it that way? You know, <laughs> never like get tired puzzle. of that. Were you a puzzle guy as a kid, like, you know, doing little like word games and uh, uh, number games, number always, games. always number yeah, puzzles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> always number puzzles playing with the abacus and <laughs> 
And that's funny because that's that kind of, I mean, that's what you're into now, right? Like when you're telling us, hey, this is the part of the deals that I like. I'm just becoming a really big advocate of that. If quit trying to do everything because then you get overwhelmed and you don't take action, narrow it down to what you are actually going to do and then focus on crushing that and you'll start to see progress gets made. I really like that. And I think it's important to distinguish between that and some of the advice that I've heard of like focus on an asset class, which I hear a lot, like focus on an asset class, don't go do everything. And, you know, while that's true, I think you should have like a primary asset class to focus on trying to avoid all asset classes because you're not an expert in everything. I think you can have a generalist mentality on asset classes, but have a specialist mentality on the function within real estate investing. So I just wanted to point that out, but I completely agree with you, David. I would not want to do everything ever again. You said that a lot fancier <laughs> than I did, though. I mean, I was like, well, not not all assets are good assets. And then you you came in very eloquently. I got a question for you. In sure. your opinion, and this is actually Brandon's question. I'm just taking it because he took one of mine. Uh, <laughs> what's the one thing that should be taught in school that isn't? Oh, wow. That's great. Um, asset versus liability. Ooh. Well, okay, hold on. Are we talking about in like real estate investing specifically or just in general? That could be anything. You could say, oh, like, if yeah. it's one thing, how to love. That's how to that love. Be, how to love. Yeah. What do you mean? Explain. Um, I, I, I think it should be. I, I don't know what I'm talking about. So you know, let's, let's start, let's start with that benchmark. I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about, but uh, I think it'd be pretty cool if every 16 year old had a, had an international experience. I think that there is a lot of, a, a lot of separation between domestic and international humanity. And that's not just America, that's everywhere. Uh, I think that there is a lot of disconnects between family life and the rest of the world. You know, if you're 16 years old and you, you, you're raised a certain way, sometimes a crazy way, I've had a little bit of that myself. And you kind of go into the world thinking that this is how the world works. And I'm like, no, you're just, you're coming from a weird place. So I, I think having kind of college level psychology or philosophy conversations around how to love and like the meaning of existence to a small degree. I, I think a little bit of that could go a long way in the adolescent years of one's life, you know, combine that with interactions of, of international interactions. And, and I think we'd be all better off. I think that's much more important than being financially literate, but I also think financial literacy is, is heavily important. I just don't, I mean, if you've asked that question to other people, I'm sure that's what everybody else has said. So I'm I want to go with the how to love. I don't think I've ever actually asked that question before. I just, I found that on the internet earlier well, and I was like, Oh, that's a good actually, one. Actually, you didn't ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> I asked that question and Ben came back with, I'm bad at love. And it was like, I should have learned how to do this in, in high school. I thought that was yeah. awesome. Oh, yeah. that's funny. All right. Good answer though. That's really good. All right. So that was kind of, that was, that was fun. Uh, I just, yeah, earlier today I was looking at this list of like, just like good, like questions to, to talk, you know, go deep on. And that was, uh, that was definitely deep. So thank you for uh, indulging me. I like that one. So Good. All right. So let's go back to real estate here specifically. And we're going to dive into one particular deal because it's time for the deal. Deep dive. Deep dive. All right. This is the part of the show where we dive deep into one of your deals uh, and go kind of specific. So you got a deal in mind that we can really pick apart? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So first of all, what kind of deal is this that we're going to be talking about today? What kind of property? Single family flip. Ooh, single family flip. All right. And how did you find this single family flip? 
Found this by way of connecting with a broker. I think I mentioned it earlier. No, I didn't. This was Kevin. Uh, connecting with a broker uh, who does 1,400 investor properties a year in Chicagoland. And he lists them for free because he gets 6% when he sells them to you. So he only wants to work with investors. He's got three contractor teams. It was supposed to be a very turnkey experience. Uh, and I had never done a flip before. Oh, okay. Uh, when was this, by the way? That's not one of our this, questions. But. This was 2017. Okay. All right. So how much was the property? How much did you pay for it? I paid 155,000 for memory around there, 155,000. How did you negotiate that price? I did not. So this, this turnkey experience was zero negotiation. It's I've got this under contract because I am the broker for HUD or the broker for this foreclosure at the bank. So I just tied it up in house and for the best price that I could. And you can either take it in the next 60 minutes or it's going to one of my other investors. So was it kind of like a wholesaler, essentially, like they put it under contract and they're just like flipping it to you? It was a wholesaler with 30 years of investment uh, brokerage experience. So not kind of like your uh, bandit sign wholesaler, but more of like I do this a thousand times a year wholesaler. But he didn't like get under contract for 140 and then sell to you for 155, right? No, he gets 6% commission on the listing. So I I got it for the price that he negotiates it. Yeah. Very interesting model. Yeah. Yeah. I've never heard of that. I mean, if the numbers work for him, that's really smart. He's, he's basically finding his own listing without having to put his money into it. That's exactly right. And that's why he yeah. lists it for free on the back end. So when you're done flipping yeah. it, he'll list it for free. You save your 3% and he knows that he's got a repeat customer coming back to buy yeah. more of his deals to get 6%. So he wants the deals to work out so that he can deal with fewer and fewer people to get the same volume done. That's yeah. cool. All right. How, All did right. You, how did you fund this deal? Oh, I thought you say how I was going to find this deal, and I was going to say bigger pockets because I connected with him on bigger pockets. Oh, did but, you really? Uh, yeah, I connected with him on bigger pockets. Oh, that's pocket. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. I funded it. Uh, yeah, so I put a flip fund together, just a really, really small flip fund, hundred grand from a couple other people that had done some of the single families with me, and I did the rest hard money. Okay, cool. Seven and a half percent hard money. That's that's a good rate for hard money. Yeah, eighty five percent LTV on yeah, total project cost. Yeah, you know, that's amazed me, by the way. Uh, I noticed that both when I was at the best ever conference uh, that you run and also when I was at the Taro Yarbrough's conference out in Seattle, both of them, like the, the hard money lenders that are there and like talking to people, hard money rates have come down so much. So over the much. Past. Yeah. yeah, like four or five yeah. points, like yeah, over the last crazy. four or five years. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. They, I mean, it was minimum, but like years ago, it was like minimum 12, 13, 14% interest and four or five points. Like now it's like two points, sometimes one point. Like it's crazy. Yeah. I think we're going to look back at these days someday and be like, back in my day, interest yeah. rates were 4%. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> what were we thinking? Just like we look back at 2010 and like those houses were $14. Why didn't yeah. I buy them? <laughs> yeah. All right. So what did you, what did you do with this property? I mean, you flipped it, right? It was a flip. So uh, we had a $45,000 construction budget on 155,000. We purchased price with an ARV after a pair value of 300 grand, 290 to 300 grand. So a decent okay. spread. Okay. So what was the outcome then? Outcome was I spent close to $85,000 on construction. I held it for twice as long as I needed to. So my carry costs were twice what I, what I wanted to. And I sold it for $230,000. Really? Yep. Whoa. So, you, so that, I mean, I'm doing the math in my head real quick. Doesn't look like you made much money on that. Oh no, that's, that's the deal anything. that I lost 120 grand on. So I, I picked okay, that I deal to say, do a deep dive yeah. on. Yeah. yeah, that's good. Okay. So yeah. then the big question is, what lessons why? did you learn? Yeah, why? <laughs> what happened? Yeah, so a bunch of things happened, but they all kind of stem from this this place of hubris where I had done 
uh, I think over 30 deals at this point, close to three dozen deals, single family, never lost a buck. Even on the deals that didn't go well, I still made money. Not a lot, but some. Um, and so I had this experience having only ever done, done uh, ever having done cash flowing assets, never having done a flip. Uh, so when you're, when you're buying a cash flow asset, I mean, you can flip it. I mean, you can do a lease option. You've got all these strategies, but when you're buying something specifically to flip and you're not looking at those other strategies, you've got this one outcome that, that you're looking for this thought of, I can automate flipping the same way that I have automated this, uh, management of my rentals. You know, I was getting 25% ownership to manage it, but I, I more or less had outsourced it at that point. So I started from this place of hubris and trusting. Um, and I had done two deals with this group and I'd made, you know, 20, 25 grand on, on each one. So it worked out, but then I just bought the wrong deal with them. I bought the wrong one because I, I did, I don't know Chicago land. I mean, each borough there, and I guess not borough, but municipality there is completely different from the next. It's no one has called it the least corrupt place in America. Um, <laughs> so like <laughs> the relationship with the permitting office was, was awful. I mean, I went through th- 12, 13 certificate of occupancy inspections. I never ended up getting my certificate of occupancy, never ended up getting it after doubling my, my budget. There was a little bit of negligence on my contractor's part that I believe, but I think the biggest thing was that if I was one block over, I would have been in that 300 plus price range, but I was not one block over. I was exactly where I was. And there was a socioeconomic history that I was unaware of, that my broker was unaware of, that my contractor was unaware of, that my lender was unaware of. uh, And it made all the difference. So I ended up having to sell this in a different neighborhood than I thought without a certificate of occupancy. And when I went to go visit the property a year after I had bought it, I realized that my, that the work was just, it wasn't, wasn't brand new. It was definitely a cheaply done flip, which I suppose the last two had been done the same way they had worked out, but this one was not. So, you know, the other, the other mistake that I made was that I had a nine month term on my loan and I ended up holding this thing for 13, 14 months. So I had to re, I had to get, <laughs> I had to refinance it. So I, not only did I have to pay extension points, but I also had to pay more points when I, I refinanced it. So I had heavy carry costs. I had heavy, heavy permitting costs. I paid more than double on my budget. And then I ended up losing 70 grand on, on my ARV. So yeah, it, it was the opposite of a slam dunk. Yeah. I, I'm so glad you said all that stuff. I mean, like it seems so fun to hear stories of people making a hundred, 200 grand on a flip. And it's like, Oh, awesome. Especially when it's from a distance, but you just brought up so many good points on why like it can be dangerous. And you know, if you don't understand the market well enough and you don't have that solid core four, as David says, like, like, yeah, it's not as easy as it looks. So anyway, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And and I look at it as a plus for two reasons. One, I lost that hundred thousand dollar flip fund. I didn't put that money in. Somebody else did. I lost all that money. That was theirs. But I still pay them a hundred grand plus 8%. Um, um, so that was number one was I had an opportunity to do the right thing all on my own. Uh, and I think it made all the difference with those relationships and the story of myself that I get to tell. Yep. And number two, I was able to, to David's point, you know, really concretely know about myself, what I'm good at and what I've freaking suck at. <laughs> and so when, when I, when I was, you know, partnering up with these, with, with the, the gentleman that I work with now, you know, they're looking at my underwriting file and they're like, holy shit, that's impressive. And I'm, I'm looking at their, you know, 310 point due diligence list for, for doing condo conversions with DC row homes in a very highly litigated you know neighborhood. And I'm like, oh wow, that's incredibly impressive. This would be a good marriage. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> that's without, cool, man. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's really, and I love that, that the integrity there, but you didn't have to necessarily pay everyone back. Like, you know, that's the risk that they've made, you know, when they invest with somebody, but the fact that you did, you're like, Hey, I'm going to make this right anyway. I, I think that's phenomenal. So yeah, good on you. And, and now I get to brag about losing money, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> awesome, that's, awesome. That's how you know somebody's really doing well because they're not afraid <laughs> to tell you about the time they lost. Cause they yeah, know, like, yeah. oh, I, I did so good on all the others. <laughs> Very, very clever, Ben. <laughs> all right. Well, all right. So let's let's move on from the deal deep dive and head over to the next segment of the show, which we yeah. call the fire round. It's time for the fire round. All right, time for the fire round. These questions come direct out of the Bigger Pockets forums, which of course everyone can go to participate in by going to biggerpockets.com slash forums. Uh, let's see. We're going to throw a few of Matt Gia here, Ben. Number one from Keith from Camp Hill, Pennsylvania. It seems like there's plenty of good deals for single family homes, but I'm having trouble finding multifamily. You know, the MLS has some deals, but all I found is retail prices. How are good multifamily deals found today? Uh, they're not, they're created. So multifamily mm. deals and all commercial deals are not found. Good ones are not found. I mean, if, if you can figure out how to make that deal uh, perform in a way that's different from everybody else. If you have a niche strategy that separates you from the pack, that's how you're going to make the deal work because otherwise you're competing with New York money. That's using life insurance debt financing at two, three, 4%, which you can't compete with that even with an agency loan, or you're competing yeah. with 1031 money who it doesn't really care what the cap rate is, right? There's so much 1031 money out there right now. So if you're not able to create the value in multifamily or any commercial asset, either look in another asset class, just get out because you don't want to lose your shirt or find a, a partner who can help you, who can compliment you in creating that, that value. So for example, for us having that, this is not lightning round. So never mind. Yeah. We'll just cut it off there. <laughs> uh, no, that was a good answer. That was really good. All, All right, right. Next, next question from Jared and Raleigh. I consider myself a numbers person when I look at a deal, which in turn makes me seem not so warm. I'm trying to approach a park owner about lowering his price and working on my negotiation skills. Do you have any advice for me? Yeah, uh, that's, that's definitely hard is to be a numbers guy and an interpersonal guy. We look for that a lot when we're hiring at Spartan because it's so unique. One is date. Just go on dates. So if you're single, go on dates with somebody that you would want to just have an interaction with. And if you're not, if you're married, go on friendship dates. Tell your wife or your kids or whatever that you've got work to do and go practice by going on dates. Grab a cocktail with somebody. Read the book Click by Ori Brofman. Read, uh, you know, um, Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. And then just go on dates and practice interaction. Practice uh, connecting with people, clicking with people, and then take that into your business life. Or partner with somebody who's good at it. Yeah. Like I do. <laughs> yeah, there you, go. there you go. Well, and I th it's funny how many people will say things like, I'm just, I'm an introvert. I'm not good at talking with people. And then like when you ask them, well, what do you do to improve that? They're like, what? Yeah. You know, like, like, <laughs> like, like, no, like nobody wants to like, so either you got to find a way to get around your, your weaknesses by partnering with somebody who doesn't have them or work on your weaknesses and fix them. Yeah. But instead people are just like, well, it's, it's, it is who I am. So I guess I can't invest, you know, or. Yeah. And, and I bet you're probably the, the same as I am, Brandon, because I saw, I saw you at the conference, like chilling in a corner, you know, like, yeah, like that's I, what I do. <laughs> like I like I, my I'm corner. an introvert too. Like I yep. do not love networking. One-on-one -on -one interactions is my thing. Yes. You know? <laughs> yep. Exactly the same thing. So I actually, I'm similar. Like I'll find people to partner with who are better at that. Like I'm not going to deal with contractors. I, I typically don't. I hire people or I work with people or partner with people who do that. Cause I just, I just, 
I'm just not good at that. Exactly. So like, <laughs> I'm not going to sit on the couch and watch my, you know, the bachelor every night. Cause I can't do it. I'm just going to find somebody else who is good at it. So yeah, there you go. All right. Number let's do this one. We'll call it the last one. Uh, Greg from Southern Maine said, this is what, what are some of your favorite motivational quotes? Like, is there any quote that like, just like gets you going or you, 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 you look at. Oh God, I'm, I'm awful with regurgitating like quotes from like <laughs> TVs, movies and stuff like that. Um, I'll tell you, just, I don't know if it's, you could do what Brandon does and you could just take the smartest thing you've ever said and then say it. And it was like a wise man once said, you can do that if you can't think of anything. You gotta let that die, David Green. Let it die. It's one time. Uh, this too shall pass. That's the one I always go back to. This too shall I, pass. The, the, when I lose 120 grand and I'm like, shoot, I have to like yep. answer to my wife. I have to answer to all these people, these investors, this too shall pass. You'll get through. And when I'm riding on a high and I think I can take it easy or I, I think I'm like the man, this too shall pass and I'll, I'll have my lows again. So I don't know if that's, if that lifts me up every day, but that's probably my favorite quote to keep me level-headed. That's perfect. That's perfect. I actually say it to myself too. Whenever something goes wrong, I'm like this too shall pass. This too shall yes. pass. Yep. Not very, to be confused good. with you shall not pass. <laughs> <laughs> Which you shall not. Yeah. Brandon should totally dress up as Gandalf for Hawaii. He's, he's, I mean, not for Hawaii, for Halloween. He's halfway there. And All if right. you started yelling this, thou shall not pass, you I would not pass. Yeah. Right. I'll work on that. All right. That was good. That was good. All right. Uh, cool. End of the fire round. Let's head to the last large segment of the show. And that is our. Famous for. All right, this is the last segment of the show. It's the part that we ask you the same four questions we ask every guest every week. All right, before we get to the famous four, let's hear what's going on this week over on the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. Hey there, Brandon. This week's guest on the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast is Christina Gillick. She's going to teach us about what is possibly the most important skill for any aspiring entrepreneur. But the thing I love about this episode is that for all the real estate investors in your audience who rely on buying and selling deals, this skill is extremely important for them as well. So for all you listeners out there who want to tune into the show, you can find the Bigger Pockets business podcast on your favorite podcast app and subscribe today. You don't want to miss this episode. Now, go enjoy the famous four. All right. And now let's get to these famous four questions. Number one, Ben, do you have a favorite real estate related book? Here's what I'm jamming on right now. Am I being too subtle? Read this last year by Sam Zell. Hmm. Uh, it is not a how-to as much as it is an awesome story of a self-made billionaire that is still alive today in real estate. All right, cool. I had not read that one. It's what good. is your favorite business book? Uh, well, that would, yeah, a business book. All right. Um, shoot. Uh, Chris Voss, Never Split the Difference. Good All one. Right. That's a good one. I see you also on over your shoulder there on the left, you have the book Traction. Uh, is that hey, right? Is that what I'm saying over there? Check out the office library. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You got a lot of books over there. Yeah. Nice. Traction. Anyway, I have not read, but I can pull Scott into this room. He can talk about it. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. I was going to say it's on my, it's on my list. That's why I saw it there. I was like, oh yeah, I gotta, I gotta finish that. I started it once. I just didn't finish it. Yeah. So I'm working that's on that That's a man one who next. knows his weaknesses. I hire people to read books for me and tell me what they say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a numbers guy, not a letters guy. I don't read. <laughs> all right. What are some of your hobbies? 
uh, skiing, hiking. I'm, I, I, you can see probably in the reflection in the background, uh, our office is right outside the Rockies. So I'm within biking, hiking, skiing distance of like a walking distance of biking, hiking, skiing. Big sports guy. Where, where is your office? Is that outside Denver? Golden, Colorado. Yeah. 30 minutes oh, west. Oh, Golden. Okay. Nice. Yeah. yeah. I love Golden. That's a great area. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Last question for me. What do you believe sets apart successful real estate investors from those who give up, fail, or never get started? Doing, just doing, acting, doing, being active, just taking steps, making action. And I don't know if there's anything simpler than that. <laughs> awesome. I you, love can, it. you can, you can fail 999 times and a thousandth time could be what makes the difference. So if you're, if you're not continuing to take steps, you're not going to learn. And if you're not learning, you're not going to feel comfortable. And if you're not comfortable, you're never going to go anywhere. Wiser right. words have never been said. <laughs> that was awesome. So that was for a people quote that are by Ben Lapidus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a wise man once said. Now you see Brandon's rubbing off on you. You spent time with him. And that's... I never said a wise man once said that. that. Was Tyrion Lannister from Game of Thrones said that? <laughs> David gets me confused with Tyrion. Obviously, why we we both look pretty similar. <laughs> yeah. <It's> okay. <laughs> so impish. <laughs> Anyway, all right. All right, so for people that are fascinated by your story, Ben, tell us, where can people find out more about you? Uh, you can either check me out at the Best Ever Conference, besteverconference.com, or you can hit me up on email, ben at spartan-investors.com. Awesome. All right, dude. Well, thank you very, very much. And, uh, you know, I'm sure I'll be seeing you around probably at next year's best ever, if not before that, but, uh, oh, don't, put don't on a good my show. fancy like that. <laughs> <laughs> you, you put on a good conference. So yeah, Thanks, man. everyone should definitely check it out next year. All right. Thank you so much, Ben. And, uh, with that, we'll just take this show out. This has been awesome. So I really, really appreciate it. David Green, I'll let you actually say the final words and, and get us Sounds out Sounds great. For Ben Lapidus, this is David Green for Brandon Knows What Makes You Smile Turner, signing off. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. Braving the real estate investing journey on your own can be daunting. Doubts tend to creep up and stifle your ambition. Is this actually a good deal? Did you run the numbers right? What if you can't find a tenant? Can you even afford this place? What if you lose your job? Whatever you're going through, we've all been there. And guess what? The best way to overcome your doubts and hesitations is with a healthy dose of knowledge, networking, and accountability. And that's just what you'll find in our newly released 2024 Summer Boot Camps. After these eight action-packed weeks of step-by-step -step guidance from expert investors, weekly video modules, live Q&As, interactive assignments, and new friends to keep you accountable, you'll be ready to tackle your first or next deal with full confidence and expertise. Choose from the small multifamily, short-term rental, or rookie boot camps and register by April 12th for the lowest prices. Head on over to biggerpockets.com slash enroll me today. That's biggerpockets.com slash enroll me. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.